ask us to stay standing for just a minute, if you guys don't mind, for those who are able. Um, I think one of the greatest responsibilities of the church is to pour itself out into the next generation, to raise up true world changers for Jesus. And I thought a couple more amens there would be good. That's a good spot to amen for me right there. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, it's tempting, though. It's weird in a church. We don't even do this on purpose sometimes. We kind of look at the, the kids and the students as a church as kind of the, the children of the real members, right? And then they become legitimate once they're old enough and hit certain milestones. But it is so important to me that Northern Hills would be a church where we see every child and student in this church as a legitimate member of the family, as a real contributor to the kingdom of God. I think it's so critical. And so when I joined the team here, even just a couple weeks ago, I went to Casey and Brandon, some of our staff who oversee our kids and students, and I just said, hey, if there are ever any students or kids in this church where you just see the hand of God on them, you just see a real passion for Jesus already stirring inside of them, I want to make sure we take those opportunities to affirm that and raise that value in our church. And so I actually want to invite Ash up to the front. Can we give Ash some love real quick as he comes up to the front? Now, guys, Ash is one of those students. There have been multiple people in our church who said there is something special going on in this young man's life. And so I thought it was so important for us as a church to affirm him together and speak into his life. And so, Ash, I just want to take a moment and just say there are so many people in this church that recognize the hand of God on your life. You've shown so much initiative. You have stepped up and reached out to students on the fringes. And there's just such a passion for Jesus already showing your life. And so we just want to take a moment and really challenge you to live boldly for Jesus. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You do not need to have any shame about your faith and what you're living for in Jesus' name. And Paul even tells Timothy not to let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers. You are already an example, Ash. You're just a great young man of God. I'm going to speak that into you today. And you just need to know there is a family here. There's a church that's behind you. We're here to support and cultivate the call of God on your life. And we just cannot wait to see how he uses you as you grow into that calling. And so I asked Ash to take a minute and just read our passage for today. So he's going to do that right now. Uh, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do a people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And Lord, we pray right now. We pray for Ash that you would give him your favor, your protection, your power as he lives for you. In his spheres of influence, Lord, I pray you would use our church to raise up hundreds and even thousands more kids and students just like him, that we can truly send out world changers into our world, into our culture, Lord. We can raise up the greatest generation this world has ever seen of people following you. We thank you for what you're doing in this young man's life, and we pray you bless our time together today. In Jesus' name, good amen, everybody. Amen, amen. All right. Northern Hills, good morning. It's nice to see you all. Second service, the rowdy crowdy. All right? You guys are the loud ones, right? Come on, you're going to talk back to me, give me some love, and have some fun. You can have some fun in church, right? You can have a good time. You guys are well caffeinated, well rested. You got to sleep in. 
not like all the uptight early service people, right? Who are just all stuck in their details and their schedules. No, we like to relax and have a good time, right? Well, hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Brian. Um, I'm the pastor here at Northern Hills. And just got to say, I have met a good handful of you guys who have just been coming the last couple of weeks. Some of you guys, even for the first time that they've met, just got to say, just so glad you're here. I know how intimidating it can be just coming into a new place, not really feeling like you know anybody. Just trust me, you're with some good people today. We're going to have some fun, and it's just going to be a good time, all right? So who's ready to dig in a little bit today? Let's get after it. I, uh, I'm curious if anybody in here has any experiences of waiting in ridiculously long lines for anything. Anybody got any painful memories? Am I bringing up some scars? Let, I, amusement parks in particular is just insane. You spend the whole day to hopefully ride three rides because you will spend most of your time in a line. I have Six Flags history. If anybody knows Six Flags theme parks, any of my Midwest or Southern folk here. But um, there's one place in particular that has incredibly long lines, Disney World. I've got any Disney World experience here. Disney World did a study once on how accurate their estimated wait time predictions were. You know how they have those little signs that say this many minutes. In June of 2017, they were starting to track their stuff, and they had a wait time on the, I want to get it right, Avatar Flight of Passage. I don't know if anybody's ridden that ride before, but that was the ride. The wait time was 300 minutes, okay? Now, my public school education tells me that's five hours, I think, but you can check my math. And they tested it, and the actual wait time was 319 minutes, five and a half hours of waiting to go on a couple minutes of a ride. Now, I'm curious, how many churches do you think in our country today had lines to get in this morning? And here's the thing, I am not trying to make some sort of comparison between amusement parks and church. I promise you, I am not going to give you the same adrenaline hit as a roller coaster right now. All right, something's probably really bad if that's happening. But here's what, here's what I am wondering, though. I'm wondering how many of us in here had maybe neighbors or friends that don't typically go to church texting and calling us, begging for a ride to church. I'm wondering how many of you guys had that happen to you this morning. I wonder even in just the last year, how many of us in this room have had any friends or family members saying, please, Tell me about Jesus. I need to know. What church do you go to so I can attend there regularly and give them all of my money and time, right? I bet it hasn't happened to a whole lot of us. And here's where I'm getting at. This is just what I'm trying to say. Most people, let's just be honest, don't really have much of an interest for God, church, things of Jesus. That's just, that's just a reality. Now, it's actually kind of a little bit more interesting than that. We are living in a very fascinating time in our history. Um, some of you guys, this might be new information for you, Gen Z, anybody mid-20s and younger, this is the first genuinely post-Christian generation we have in America. Now, this is historic, guys, because we've never actually had a post-Christian generation before. This means that Gen Z basically feels like Christianity has been tried and proven not to really work. It's just a relatively interesting part of our history, but nothing we need to mind ourselves about today. So much so, if you saw that data, Gen Z has twice the rate of atheists as even the millennials coming up before them. Now, we actually hit a historic moment even in this last year in 2021. The first time in our nation's history where church involvement has fallen below the majority line. First time in history. That's the chart graphing church participation. <clears throat> and we are basically on an increasing trajectory of decline. That's just a fact. Now, What's interesting about just this dynamic right now happening in our culture is church leaders and us pastors, we have all sorts of interesting conversations about how to, you know, 
address this situation. And a lot of our conversations in years past have been all about the methodology of church. And so we, we've talked so many times for so many years about how can we make the production value of Sundays amazing? Like we're going to compete with all of the best possible experiences on planet Earth. So we're not just going to have lights. We're going to get lights that burn holes in the wall. That's what we're going to do. Or we're going to have music that can literally melt people's faces off. Because all of you guys are begging me to turn the music up. That's all I hear is please make the music louder, Brian. Because I know all of you guys want that. Or how, how can we get so much haze in the room where you can taste it in your mouth? That's what we're going to do. We're going to make the best possible experience we can. Now, do not hear me wrong. I'm all about some good production experience, right? I have to be here on Sunday, so I would like for it to be a nice experience because i got to spend my whole Sunday here. I might as well have a good time. I like good lights and good music. We always want to improve that stuff. But here's what I find interesting. We have the greatest production value we have ever had in the history of the church today. And yet, we are seeing more decline than we have ever seen before. And so, we're at this defining moment, honestly, in the Christian faith in America, where on one level, we can just kind of accept the decline and play defense for as long as possible, trying to slow this inevitable drift into obscurity. Or, or, is it possible God is positioning us for the greatest spiritual revival and reawakening that we have ever seen in the history of the world. Maybe that's what God might be doing at this very moment in history, and we are born for just a time as this. And that is what this series, Compelling, is all about that we are starting today. We're starting this new series called Compelling. This is the whole premise of the series, all right? We, as God's church, are called. We have a personal responsibility. It is in our nature to be compelling. That is what God's church is supposed to be. And not compelling so much, again, in Sunday production experience, though, again, that has its place. I am talking about compelling in the quality of the people. That is where we're called to be compelling. The church is supposed to be this paradoxical, amazingly weird, beautiful, countercultural movement that literally renews and transforms the fabric of culture and society from the foundations. That is what the church is called to be. And so here is our question that we have to wrestle with today, guys. Are we compelling? Are we actually attractive to a watching world? Are we living such an attractive, countercultural, compelling lifestyle that it actually causes people to rethink their own lifestyles and beliefs? Because I really believe, guys, that if there is any hope for the future of the faith in our culture, it is in its people. It's in us living truly compelling, Christ-honoring lives. That's what this is all about. And so we're going to dig in a little bit introductory on that today. If you want to follow along, crack open a Bible. We're going to be Matthew 5. If you're new here, you can just follow along on the screens. But um, I will say, if you've been here for a while, guys, this is our chance to lean in. We're going to dig in now, all right? Listening to a sermon is not a passive experience. I preach a little bit of talk back. It helps me, all right? And let's get engaged. Let's dig in. Let's shake it out a little bit. And we're going to read right here. Jesus is talking right here. And this is the longest recorded teaching we have from him in his entire life. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, famous. He's talking about prayer. He's talking about spiritual practices. But at one point in this message he's giving, he's talking about the engagement Christians are supposed to have with the culture around them. And so he's challenging us to really think about what our role is in the culture, in the life he's given us. And so I'm going to start in verse 13 in Matthew 5. This is Jesus talking. You are the salt of the earth. 
Now let's stop right here. Some of you guys have heard that verse so many times, it's just like, you know, in and out one ear. Just think about how many things Jesus could have compared us to, and he picked salt. Now, I'm old enough, I'm starting to become one of the old guys, okay? I'm old enough to remember when calling someone salty was actually, like, offensive. Do you ever, anybody remember that from the high school years? Man, that guy's really salty. Man, they're feeling a little bit of salt. Any of the young people, we don't say, you don't say, okay, yeah. It's not, it's not a cool thing anymore. But you need some context here, all right? Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. He's meaning something totally different. When Jesus is talking about salt, at this time, it was an extremely valuable commodity. And so much so that they would often pay Roman soldiers in salt. That's where we get the term from, someone being worth their salt. And so this is actually, I don't want to say it's a compliment, but it's kind of like Jesus is really putting some value on people right here. But salt essentially kind of has like a twofold purpose, especially in this cultural time. I think what Jesus is trying to speak to. On one level, salt acted as a preservative and um, antiseptic at the time. Think about it, you don't have refrigeration. So the only way to keep meat good as long as possible is just to douse it full of salt. And then salt would also help prevent decay and decomposition in different things. But there's another level to this. Salt, even at this time, acted as a seasoning. It was a, it was a way to enhance the taste and bring out the good in things. So at a very base level, very base level, Jesus is saying, if you are going to be serious about following me, and living in my ways in this world, in the one life you have, you have a unique responsibility. And it's to act as a preservative in the culture. You're to preserve God's goodness of his creation, to preserve the moral and spiritual purity that God intended for this. And on one level, even cleanse the decay that comes from sin and brokenness in the world. And then on another level, though, he's saying, you're supposed to be an enhancer. You're supposed to accentuate the beauty and value of humanity in this created world, so much so that your life should spark the spiritual taste buds in somebody's soul as you engage with them in the world. Now, you may not have heard this name before. This is this guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor theologian um, during World War II in Germany. And what's fascinating about him was he actually ended up losing his life because he got involved in a plot to try to assassinate Hitler. So he had a really kind of fascinating guy. At one point in his life, the Nazi regime was starting to come to power and Hitler was starting to rise. And he noticed that the German church in particular was really starting to compromise. They were really giving into the propaganda and messaging of Hitler and what he was doing. And so he realized this and it alarmed him. And he said, I need to try to cultivate people that can stand up against this giant monolith that is becoming the Nazi regime. So Bonhoeffer starts this underground seminary trying to cultivate these radical disciples, these intense followers of Jesus that can resist Hitler himself. And he started getting this reputation of kind of being a little insane. They're like, dude, you're way too intense, man. You need to bring it down like 10 notches, okay? You need to, you're scaring people, all right? This is a little, this isn't the Navy SEALs, all right? This is just church. <laughs> but his friend finally came to check it out because, again, people were here and like, okay, Bonhoeffer's kind of lost his mind. He's too intense. And he comes and checks it out, and Bonhoeffer takes him out in a boat. They cross the water. They go over this clearing. And as he and his friend look over, they look as far as the eye can see, thousands and thousands of soldiers practicing formations, going through drills, planes taking off and practicing maneuvers. And it was the cultivation of the machine that would become Hitler's army. And in that moment, Bonhoeffer said to his friend, he said this, they are forming a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. He said, we have to be stronger 